It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Dr. Peter McCullough, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Well, thanks for having me. Well, Peter, I, uh, I'm affectionately known as the world's best courage coach. And that's not, nothing to do with ego. That's the commitment that I've made to myself. And I ask myself when I wake up in the morning, how would the world's best courage coach conduct himself? And one of the things that I that came to mind was having other really courageous people. And that's where you came in. And I've got to thank Kevin Tuttle for the introduction. What does the word courage mean to you? Courage means uh, the characteristic of, of facing an adverse situation without fear or concern regarding consequences to oneself. And I think that's a, a solid definition. It's something that uh, really is in the job description of people in the military, firefighters, police officers. It's not necessarily something in the job description of a doctor or even a, a character coach. So I think, look, thank you for sharing that. I was just really curious to know what your thoughts were on that, because this ties into what we're going to talk about throughout the rest of the show. But there's there's people that follow this show that are interested in the truth, that are interested in hearing really diverse ideas and opinions on, on life, all shapes and forms. So there will be people that have never heard of you. And I know you do this a lot, but can I encourage you just to share who you are and what your credentials are and what make you competent to be able to talk about what we're going to talk about today. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing uh, internal medicine physician and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. I practice as a large at a large academic medical center. I'm uh, part in practice, part uh, in a research position in terms of review and scholarship. <clears throat> I attended Baylor University undergraduate uh, and then University of Texas Southwestern Medical School uh, and then University of Washington in Seattle for my internal medicine residency. These are all uh, top institutions in the United States. I trained at University of Michigan School of Public Health and Epidemiology and then Cardiology at uh, what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. I've had academic leadership positions my entire career. I'm the most published person in my field in the world in history in the field of how the heart and kidneys interact with one another. And I've made uh, key observations and, and uh, discoveries in leading uh, clinical trials uh, for patients, uh, both in in vitro diagnostics and therapies. And when the pandemic virus hit, I redirected my research efforts and scholarship and my clinical activities to helping patients get through the illness and avoid hospitalization and death, and importantly, helping the world understand uh, principles of treatment <clears throat> based on signals of benefit and acceptable safety of the available agents as they evolved over time. And then since the introduction of the mass mandated products, uh, giving a fair balance and careful review of these products in terms of safety, and safety always comes first, and then efficacy. I have 56 papers on the pandemic virus and its therapeutic response. Uh, I was an original contributor in a Washington journal the first year of the pandemic in the Hill. And then in the second year, I started my own podcast on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report. But many of uh, your listeners may know me. I set the record on the Joe Rogan podcast. I, I beat Elon Musk and anybody else who's ever walked in that studio uh, because I went through the carefully the curated scientific slides on the, the pandemic and everything we knew about it. It was such of high interest and value to the audience. I'm a frequent contributor on the major TV networks in the United States with hundreds and hundreds of appearances. Most people know me there. And then I've been the lead witness in historic U.S. Senate testimonies on two occasions now, 
over the two years of the pandemic in multiple state senates. So many have regarded me as uh, one of the most qualified medical professionals to render an analysis on the pandemic. And I do my best uh, in terms of citing the data. I think that's a distinguishment. Uh, When you have other media doctors on, they just aren't able to locate the evidence to support their points. Do you ever get sick of uh, sharing those credentials to the world? I'm asked uh, for them. Uh, and, and there is such an, a giant issue of credibility. Uh, <clears throat> we hear our government agencies, for instance, uh, make various proclamations, but without supportive evidence. And unfortunately, the credentials of those people making those statements aren't reviewed. And then the scientific evidence uh, to either support or refute what they're saying isn't reviewed as well. So in a sense, uh, what our government agencies have participated in is unfortunately propaganda which is defined as false information put forward by people in positions of authority. So I, I want to put you on the spot, uh, Doc, and I want to read you uh, something that I shared on my social media. Now, if you, you don't know this, but up until I'm living in Mexico now, but I was living in Melbourne, Australia for all, up until October of 2021. Okay. So I was there during the entire brunt of the, the lockdowns and uh, had played cricket at Monash University, which features in your book as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this is a post that I shared. I didn't, I wasn't super active on putting out anything deemed too controversial, but I'd love for you just to listen to what I'm going to read out to you. And then I'd love to know what your thoughts are in terms of a response to the vitriol that I got in return. Okay. Imagine a parachute company that had a massive failure, injury, and death rate. Imagine the government gave that parachute company blanket immunity for any death and injury caused by the parachute, which had skipped all regular testing. Imagine that the parachute company kept offering cash prizes, free donuts, and free beer for jumping. Imagine that every death or injury from the faulty parachute was reported by the media as heart failure, internal injury, or massive head trauma, with no mention of the unapproved parachute and that the deceased or injured was skydiving. Imagine the government says that if you don't jump out of the plane with this parachute, you can't work, travel, go to the gym, or enjoy a meal out. Would you find any of that a little odd? My question for you, for the vitriol that I got and have lost friendships as a result of this, were they true friends to begin with? Probably debatable. What would be your response to them now? That was posted about a year ago. I would respond uh, to that by saying what you've attempted to do is uh, explain a complex reality in the in the format or the context of an analogy. And sometimes that's people do learn better, uh, particularly with medical aspects, by explaining it by analogy. I've also used an analogy of, you know, buying a car and then having so many cars go off the lot and have them suddenly explode and people lose their lives and continue to sell those cars or or provide them on the population or provide them free. The only thing I would say is that very last phrase, uh, I, I'd actually upgrade odd to frankly disturbing. Uh, and I think people should be very disturbed at what's going on. I've used the term disturbia uh, to describe a state of mind where something is going wrong that's so egregious uh, that each one of us at some level know that something's going on. You and I may operate at the, the level of, of media and data and be able to, you know, with a lot of alacrity, be able to describe what's going on. There's other people who are so far into this that it can only penetrate them at some type of subcortical level in their brain. They don't know how to respond, but they they feel internally disturbed and they may respond to this by ejecting vitriol. But I can tell you, anyone who's tried to discredit you, uh, I can almost certainly anticipate that they had no medical authority in trying to discredit you. In fact, many people trying to discredit you are probably anonymous on social media. I, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that, uh, Doctor. It's uh, It really affected me really negatively. And I've learned a lot about myself and how to understand. And, and I understand that a lot of that vitriol is is projected from their own 
feelings about themselves, right? right? It's it's actually been a really great learning curve for me. And I think the reason I wanted to share this was that there will be people listening that maybe haven't gone through that or don't have the skills to be able to handle this. What I've experienced pales into comparison to what you have gone in the and the, I'm going to say losses, because I don't really believe that they are losses, even if it might seem like it, the way that you've handled the adversity and the constant barrage from really everywhere and to stand strong in the, in the face of adversity. And, and there's a reason why you would do that. And I'm curious to know, what is the reason why you would go through all of that to keep pursuing and doing what you're doing? Well, I think first we just have to talk about the waves of adversity and where they're coming from. You know, I do a social media scan of, of who's on my feed. And the only negative statements that have ever come in are from anonymous, uncredentialed, uh, sometimes self-proclaimed fact checkers. I've actually never received a negative comment from any doctor of any medical standing anywhere in the world. I mean, I think this is a very important point. Never. And, and you know, I would I would actually perk up if a prominent chief of medicine at a university, uh, you know, had commentary and we could engage in the commentary. I think that would be constructive, uh, uh, a constructive interchange. It's never happened. What we have is a deafening silence from doctors uh, in universities, certainly across Australia, across the United States, the EU, a deafening silence where uh, they, I think in their minds, they actually know that my analyses uh, is on base, <clears throat> is well supported. Certainly my credentials are unassailable. They know me because I've presented before the FDA and the New York Academy of Sciences and the European Medicine Agency. I've been in Canberra, Australia and Sydney and, uh, and Adelaide. You know, I've been all over the country. People know who I am. And this is long before COVID. And I think for those reasons, those individuals are remaining silent. Uh, because they know that their position is unsupportable. They have nowhere to go right now as things progressively get worse. I, I love that, Doctor. And, and one of the one of the really fascinating parts of your unbelievable book that you wrote uh, with John Leake was some of the dialogue and the transcriptions of the lack of eye contact and uh, an acknowledgement, it seems like, that they know – the party involved was a doctor on a Zoom call to another doctor or WebEx call, and there were, it seemed like they knew what they were doing was wrong, but they just they were too cowardly to be able to say, you know what, I'm wrong, or there was ulterior motives and people were putting external pressure. Is that a fair observation? It's true. Um, <clears throat> I had an interview yesterday, and the word controversial came up, and, and we actually discussed what is controversial. So when we take the onset of the pandemic illness, my viewpoint is it was potentially fatal or could land people in hospital. And so a conservative, non-controversial view was to do everything we could for the patient to attempt to treat them with the best you know, uh, methods we had available at the time and be willing to adapt and upgrade over time. But to be conservative and to do our best to prevent hospitalization and death in high-risk individuals. And that's really the topic of uh, this book, which is told in a narrative. And a narrative is a story uh, which is all true. It's nonfiction, uh, but it basically tells <clears throat> the story of that conservative, mainstream, non-controversial position. No patient would ever be upset about a doctor caring about th their condition. What was controversial were doctors that said, I don't care. I'm not going to treat this. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and just let the illness progress and have patients end up in hospital. And what was even more controversial was for public health agencies and governments to take that stance. And then even worse, which is not just controversial, but it's, it's frankly nefarious, is to have agencies block doctors' attempts to help patients through the illness. I adored this book. Doctor, and I finished reading it this morning, and I like to to finish it right before I do these, so it's all fresh in my brain. The book is called "The Courage to Face C Dash Nineteen: Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling 
the biopharmaceutical complex, and you wrote that with John Leake. Uh, it is honestly one of the most unbelievable books that I've ever read, and I've read a lot of books, Peter. Uh, I would encourage the anyone listening to this to read the book because you will come out the other side of this with 99.999% more knowledge than most of the global population, in my opinion. You did such a great job. And in the book, once you get to 85% reading it on Kindle, it's finished. And the rest of the 15% is made up of the references. So you can cross-check everything. It is so unbelievably credible that if you can go through and you can find any holes in it, then more power to you. Well, you know, we have... um... Uh, nearly 300 uh, reviews on Amazon. It's it's bestseller in viral diseases, communicable diseases, and true crime. And that's what, uh, you know, John Leake, who's the principal author, he's a a full-time author. It's what he does. He's already had bestsellers about individual true crime novels. He uh, grew up in Texas, but spent most of his life in Vienna, Austria, as uh, a a medical translator and then a forensic examiner uh, and investigator. Uh, and he is uh, very skilled and trained uh, in the historical connections to what's going on. So you'll see him move through the book and draw certain similarities to even things uh, <clears throat> several uh, centuries ago, uh, like Semmelweis in uh, in Vienna, Austrian hand washing and the and the reaction to that as a as a measure to reduce infections, all the way to Purdue Pharma and House of Pain and the opioid pandemic and how Big Pharma has had now such a giant influence in moving things in the world. But we've never seen such a collaboration. We call it the biopharmaceutical complex. And you know, at the very top is the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation, uh, the entity they formed, which is the Coalition for Epidemic uh, um, uh, epidemic preparedness and innovation, CEPI, uh, who, who actually has a goal of providing mass uh, uh, products for uh, inoculation for each pandemic coming, and they actually anticipate pandemics coming. They're actually designed to do that. Uh, the U.S. CDC, NIH, FDA, uh, Gavi, uh, Welcome Trust, um, the major countries uh, in the world, all collaborating, China playing a huge role. But th- there is, it, lo- it appears to be an attempt uh, to, to, in a sense, establish a new world order through the context of a global health emergency. And as long as a health emergency is declared, this biopharmaceutical complex has figured out a way with no oversight, no accounting, uh, principles, no audits. They found a way to drain the treasuries of the world and institute this plan. But the plan is heavily dependent on the population accepting these products on a regular basis. And with the current pandemic virus, that means every six months. I want to go down a, a slightly different pathway just for a second, Peter. Uh, you're, I'm celebrating six years of sobriety, uh, August 26th, 2022, right? And longer for gambling and drugs. And, and I was high functioning. I always maintain employment, that kind of thing as well. Your, your upbringing, you grew up uh, in, an, in an environment. And if you're happy to share, what, what was growing up in United States like for you from a young man? I grew up in a relatively uh, average family. My parents have been married for um, uh, you know, f- f- five decades and, uh, you know, traditional uh, uh, Presbyterian uh, upbringing. But, you know, we had our struggles. And, uh, and at one point in time, there was a, a low time for our family as we had moved from the north to Texas. And Texas is such a wonderful place, just like Florida. It's a, it has a lot of spirit of, um, of independence. Uh, most places in Texas would would remind you of uh, Adelaide, Australia, for instance, uh, as an example. Um, and I, you know, I can tell you that uh, in the chapter, I think the chapter that gets the most attention is when my father, who who has dementia and he's in a rehab center, flat on his back with a pelvic fracture, uh, develops the illness, 
And, and this is very early on. This is before we had knowledge on, on, on how to use drugs in combination. This is before any of the, the U.S. Senate hearings. And, and how I had to, through a physician assistant, organize a treatment program. And I, you know, I had to face the issue of, uh, was I going to follow the narrative which said, do nothing and just let the virus, in a sense, slaughter him? Or do I step forward and put my best efforts forward as a son and as a doctor? And if I can't do it for my father, who can I do it for? And I think that chapter really is gripping for the readers to, to, to read. Well, I, I, I loved it. And it was just a, a great example of a son's absolute unwavering love for, for a father who might have, you know, been a challenging father at times. I know I believe there was some challenges around alcoholism in the early days. And the reason I wanted to ask you that, Peter, is that in terms of I love being able to share the realisms about my life. I nothing holds any dominion over me. And I wrote a book that that most people would would probably take their own life if that kind of information got out. But it holds no power over me now. And it allows people to understand me and the reasons why I'm doing it. So for you, like there's a couple of things that I find really interesting. Like you I don't believe you're a big fan of drinking alcohol. Do you do you drink at all? No, I, I know what it tastes like. And um I also found myself heading in that direction when I was younger. And uh, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in over 20 years. And I, I do think being free of alcohol is, in a sense, a gateway to a, a much healthier life than with it. And uh, and I appreciate you sharing that, by the way. So so here you are, you're doing this clear, clear that you're not drunk or high on anything, right? And then what I found even more interesting, interesting if you're happy to share, and it's in the book as well, who did you vote for up until the most recent presidential election for the for the four previous presidential elections? Would you would you mind sharing that? Um, okay, if I was to go backwards, so uh, I voted for uh, I voted for Biden, I voted for Hillary Clinton, I voted for Obama twice. So those would be the last four elections. So that falls on the Democratic. Uh, side of the ledger, right? So the reason, <laughs> and the re- um, this is not a political discussion at all. But the reason I wanted you to share that was it's very easy for people to incorrectly assume that this is like a right wing conservative person that we're dealing with, and clearly it's not. I mean, look at I just do you find that so interesting when people learn that about you? It, it is true. You know, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the pieces that came out out of my U.S. Senate. Um, testimony. I was the lead witness in the November 19th, 2020 uh, sets of, of testimony, uh, bringing the message about early treatment to America is, uh, you know, I was labeled as being a right wing conservative or someone who supported uh, former President Trump. And you can just see how wrong these labels are. You can see uh, kind of the malevolent intent of people discussing other people. I, I don't try to assume somebody's political leaning. I've, I've actually never made that statement regarding if one person leads right or left. I characterize myself in the middle, uh, probably moving more to the right, more conservative. Um, I've always been fiscally conservative. Uh, and I think both of the US parties have lost fiscal conservatism. There's been runaway spending in the United States ever since the Iran-Iraq war when uh, former President Bush, who I did vote for. I did vote for uh, uh, George W. Bush um, uh, twice. And uh, but when he suspended the PAYGO rules and we had uncontrolled spending in the United States, uh, uh, you know, both parties have abrogated their financial uh, and fiscal responsibilities. And uh, I, I am not religious in any capacity, but I'm very spiritual, Peter. I, it's uh, Particularly when I gave up alcohol, I think maybe the pineal gland started to decalcify, whatever you want to call it, right? And I, and I, I don't know what, I don't know what it is. I just want to know the truth so I can make an informed decision, right? And I'm very open-minded with regards to spirituality. Do you have any, any religious beliefs or any philosophies that you follow? Uh, I am a professed Christian and I attend church regularly, member of a church. And I, I do sense in this current crisis uh, that there are heavy uh, spiritual undertones here. And in fact, in many ways, we're in a, a crisis where 
we see certain actions that can clearly be classified as evil or having bad intent. And then we see other actions that are uh, completely on the side of good and beneficence. So I think people can, can see this. And they, when they see doctors caring for their patients, trying to do everything they can to save a life and, and to ease them through a potentially fatal illness, the characterization of that is good. That's a good thing. And then when they see doctors who absolutely positively will not do anything to help patients and heavily supported by their governments uh, in not doing anything for patients, that can be viewed as, as being bad or evil. And again, I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I think it's uh, whether you believe in whether you're religious or you're not, it seems like there is something really spiritual happening in the world do you do you have any hard evidence of what is going on in the world right now? I think that the fairest thing to do is to just interpret the public statements that have been made, uh, let's say, <clears throat> over the course of the last two decades, interpret the public statements uh, in a sense prima facie, meaning just interpret them as they are given. And we, we characterize them in the book. So for example, <clears throat> worldwide uh, billionaire turned philanthropist uh, Bill Gates, uh, following the uh, really the same path as John D. Rockefeller, uh, entrepreneur, uh, uh, you know, financial and industrial magnate, turns philosopher. When Gates had the public utterance in a TED talk that you know a method to reduce the world's population would be through mass vaccination. When those words were uttered, I think people should take them uh, seriously. When Gates said that, uh, and I believe this is around 2010, when he said the next decade is going to be the decade of you know, mass use of products uh, by injectable means to prevent disease, uh, you know, I, I think it should be taken very uh, seriously. When uh, the, in the U.S., and I think it was done elsewhere, when the big campaign started with the release of these products under emergency use authorization, when the billboards went up and it said <clears throat> a needle in every arm, uh, I think everybody should take that as an important statement. I'll, I'll give you one more. When Klaus Schwab, who heads the World Economic Forum, just a few months after the onset of the crisis, when he writes a book called the Great Reset and says that this health crisis is going to be used as an opportunity to set a new world order. I think people should take those utterances seriously. Why, why shouldn't we take them seriously? And we try to interpret what's going on. Uh, you know, Schwab published a book for a reason. And I think it, it, you know, it really was to tell people what was going on. Yeah, what people, what most people don't realize is that uh, Bill Gates, his father, was a really high-powered patent attorney and was very close with the lady that created, founded the Planned Parenthood uh, organization. And Bill Gates was mentored by this woman who was a known, they were part of the Eugenics Society, which is a part of keeping the population of the planet down to 500 million, if I'm not mistaken. It's not like you're digging this information up out of some obscure library that's been boarded over. This is all public domain. This is what I find so fascinating about the whole experience. It's true. Everything is in the open. Another nice book to quote is by Peter Bregan. And, and the title is the, you know, the pandemic virus and the global predators. We are the prey. And I wrote one of the introductions for that. <clears throat> now, Bregan's book is, is different because it is a medical historical book. It has 1,100 citations, and it gives the facts. It just literally gives the facts. And in the back of the book is a timeline. And in the Bregan book, the timeline lists 36 pandemic preparedness um, events that have occurred over more than a decade where this was prepared for and planned. This is very important. And 25 of them generated documents that you can review to see how it was planned and six of them were actually filmed. They were actually meetings. You can go review and see what was said. But what we've learned is uh, this largely looks like from the beginning a U.S. government operation. I think this is very important. And that the U.S. government through the National Institutes of Health has a division called BARDA. 
And BARDA deals with biologically active threats that could be used against populations. And then the U.S. military has a unit called DARPA, which is actually the defense against these uh, biologically reactive agents. And these are our tandem programs. So there is a program for aspergillus. There is a program for anthrax. There is a, a program for uh, smallpox and related orthopox viruses. And in fact, there was a program after the first uh, uh, crisis, the, the 2003 uh, viral crisis that landed out of China and into Canada. Since that time, there was an actively funded U.S. program <clears throat> to basically work and manipulate the virus to see how threatening it could be to the to the U.S. Uh, to, to a human body, and then to actually uh, in tandem develop solutions, whether they be monoclonal antibodies or other preventive measures. And these are published in papers in the peer-reviewed literature. So that one of the two seminal papers, the first author is Vanit Menacheri, and the senior author is Ralph Barrick. And they were published in Nature and PNAS, which are two very good journals. And the vast majority of authors are U.S. authors. And in the title of the papers, it's the emergence of this virus into human populations. They were, they were published in 2015. So this was clear. There was anticipation that this was going to happen. <clears throat> now, uh, you know, how it was going to happen, it wasn't stated there, but it was clear as anticipated. Importantly, very few Chinese authors. Now, the work was done in the, in the biosecurity annex uh, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The work was done there. Uh, the, the bat caves were needed to harvest the spike protein and get the genetic code. But there was a clear engineering of the lethal spike protein onto the relatively benign nucleocapsid of the virus. And then there was an engineering of animals to have human respiratory tracts and ACE2 inhibitors to actually see if the virus could actually damage the lungs. So it's in these papers, you know, so this is in the open. What Bregan points out is this is in the open. This looks like a U.S. government operation, BARDA and DARPA, that actually went bad. And, uh, and when it went bad uh, and it got out, you could see the reactions. And, and, and that explains a lot. So that explains why Moderna had a material transfer agreement and a patent co-written with the U.S. National Institutes of Health before the release of the virus. That's how Moderna announced there was a vaccine, like just a few days into the announcement of the worldwide emergency. That's the reason why it was all there. It wasn't developed with Operation Warp Speed. It was all in development. You can actually just read the read the documents and papers. So, uh, you know, there's been movies, Plandemic 1, Plandemic 2. Uh, there's a lot of exposure to this. I think people feel burned because if this was a government operation, and, and in a sense, whether it be by happenstance or by uh, planned intent, it's released on the world. It's caused a lot of hardship, suffering, economic crisis on the world that clearly did not benefit from this government operation. Peter, there's there's plenty of uh, information out there about what you've just explained, and it can all become a little bit doom and gloom for people, particularly if they end up spending way too much time down there. What advice would you give people that would like a solution in terms of decision-making going forward? Whatever's been done to this point is done. What advice would you give them in terms of how to make the best decisions going forward? I think each and every person ought to assess their own body in terms of their health and, and have an understanding that, listen, there, there is a viral threat out there. And step one would be uh, if it's acquired, and it appears to be inevitable, it appears as if every single person is going to have this. The word inevitable has come up now in terms of spread. The whole goal is to be able to get through this and survive it. Now, the virus itself has done uh, the greatest service of all. It's actually mutated to a very benign form of the virus, meaning it's similar to a common cold for the vast majority of individuals. So it's only the most frail among us who are under threat. But to the extent that each and every person can improve their health, their fitness, uh, lose weight, a healthy diet, there appears to be some nutraceuticals and supplements that are helpful in prevention. Vitamin D, notably the most important one that literature now is very extensive on this. There's an important relationship between vitamin D uh, and viral invasion. It actually may have to do at the level of the, the cell surface ACE2 
receptor. That's clear. Uh, we do know that in the setting of acute treatment, that uh, the use of virucidal nasal washes is very important. The virus actually sets up camp and replicates very quickly in the nasal passages. You cannot ignore the nasal passages. They actually, the virus needs to be uh, uh, basically uh, uh, eradicated in the nasal passages. That's done with dilute povidone iodine, dilute hydrogen peroxide, colloidal silver, um, uh, various forms of other uh, nitric oxide, various forms of other nasal uh, 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 washes and oral gargles. It's very important. So, uh, uh, so we know that those two principles play a role. In fact, after large congregate settings, I encourage all my at-risk patients to actually do nasal washing, and, and they do it. And there are 12 clinical studies to support a three large randomized trials. So we know that's important in the setting of acute treatment uh, and someone's acutely sick, then oral zinc, vitamin D, but at a higher dose, vitamin C and quercetin, oral famotidine, which is over the counter in the United States, has an antiviral effect. And then we move into what's called sequence multidrug therapy. I won't go through all of it, but I published the seminal papers teaching the world how to treat the illness and avoid hospitalization and death. And I, I had the academic strength to do that against really a tide of therapeutic nihilism. The journals uh, were not going to allow any ray of hope for patients. And so the journals, the medical journals appeared to be in lockstep. They're not fair balance at all. Uh, well, they will um, have paper after paper after paper on uh, the genetic products that are loaded on lipid nanoparticles. Uh, uh, and, and so every single permutation there, but any hope on early treatment is suppressed, blocked, delayed. Uh, so we see uh, really a muted signal in the literature, despite it actually being on the forefront of people's minds. People actually want to know when I get it, what do I do? And it's been very difficult to get that word out through the medical literature. Uh, Tucker Goodrich, I'm not sure whether you've come across that name before, is a well, relatively well-known researcher who has done a power of work around excessive, excessively stored linoleic acid or omega-6, so from vegetable and seed oils, right? And he, in an interview I did with him about a year ago, he was talking about uh, an idea, and there seems to be, there was data coming out at that point, um, there's the comorbidities that cause the issues when people had and but it was the the other lesser known part of the cytokine storm being generated from the immune response from having excessively stored linoleic acid so if you eat a diet that is way too high in in vegetable oils it was exacerbating the the problem as well have you followed much of that i haven't but it's tractable and i wanted to make the case that Viral replication is probably a minor part of the severe syndrome. A much bigger part is what's called cytokine storm or inflammation. The lead cytokine is interleukin-6. And then microthrombosis. When the oxygen saturation is going down, that's not the virus. That's actually microthrombosis. Every autopsy study that I've reviewed, uh, the fatal pathway is the oxygen saturation is so low because blood is not getting through the lungs because of clots, microclots in the lungs. We've never seen a virus that promotes blood clotting like this uh, before. It's clearly a, a new pathogenic uh, form of a viral illness. And uh, so, uh, you know, I've done on the McCullough Report, I've done interviews and I've done uh, seminars with Dr. Shankaran Chetty from South Africa, a very, very astute uh, observationalist physician. And uh, his observations are, we don't need to treat the viral replication. We don't need to. Uh, simply treat the cytokine storm and thrombosis, and he uses a combination of uh, anti-inflammatories. He uses the term hypersensitivity response, which I think is very, very interesting, uh, because when we go back to the papers by Menachery, where the virus was being engineered, they used the word hypersensitivity as well. So I, I, I think that's, that's very uh, interesting. Uh, what I've learned is there's so many different ways to treat the illness. It takes about four to six drugs in a combination. The only mistake doctors can make, and we see this happening in Australia a ton, is that doctors providing no treatment to a senior citizen, let's say, who has obesity, diabetes, heart failure, emphysema. That patient's in trouble. And if they get no treatment, that virus is allowed to just have a full run and ultimately slaughters the patient. I've reviewed hundreds, if not thousands of reports. Every single hospitalization and death is a product 
of either the full lack of treatment or inadequate pre-hospital treatment. Yeah, it's almost like, Peter, that they're deliberately trying to kill people. I don't know. It just seems a bit kooky to me. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Patients are furious at their doctors. And I tell you, I I think the doctors who have denied their patients treatment, uh, they are in deep trouble. It's interesting. And one of my breakout interviews was with Tucker Carlson. I went to his studio uh, and that was uh, over a year ago now. And I told Tucker, I said, those who are suppressing early therapeutics or denying early therapeutics, those are the ones who are the most um, vehement supporters of the mass mandated programs. So the two are linked. So if you look at, let's say, the US CDC, NIH, and, and um, FDA, in Australia, look at the TGA, um, the UK, the MHRA, in the EU, the EU. The, those organizations, with all their negative statements on treatment, at the same time are wildly enthusiastic about these mandated products taking every six months. And without exception, there's no cautionary words. There's no discussion of safety and efficacy. The, the issue is take one. Take one or lose your job. Take one or be denied social services or educational services. So the same people that are suppressing therapy are promoting something else. And American Medical Association is a great example. The American Medical Association came out in the fall of 2021 and they announced an official campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin, to abolish its use. And I can tell you, you know, this is a dynamic drug. It's supported by over three dozen randomized trials, clearly as a signal of benefit. There hasn't been a large conclusive trial showing that it doesn't work. And, and I can tell you, doctors have found it safe and effective and useful. It is part of standard of care. Uh, and so, you know, standard of care is d- defined by how doctors actually use drugs in combination. Doctors decide this, not government agencies, not the American Medical Association. So the AMA basically wanted to abolish its use. Uh, you know, in, in two dozen countries worldwide, it's first line recommended. Why would the AMA take this stance? And why on this drug? Uh, you know, it, it's extraordinary. At the same time, the American Medical Association is in an unbridled fashion without with being willfully blind to safety issues, supporting the every six month administration of genetic products. It, it's astonishing that the two are linked. And even the modern versions of drugs, this is interesting, even the emergency use authorized monoclonal antibodies, which are safe and effective. I've used them in my practice for two years. It was actually the lead term that Joe Rogan and I talked about his podcast. Those have been consistently undermined. They've been pulled off the market for theoretical reasons that they may not cover the next version of the virus. They're hard to find in the United States. A lot of countries don't even offer them. And yet these were pre-purchased in in quantities of hundreds of millions of doses. This was a giant loss of money and they were being undermined. Now we have a new oral drug in the United States by Pfizer. It's a combination of uh, uh, Nelfin, uh, Piravir and Ritonavir. It's called uh, Paxlovid. Paxlovid is being openly undermined by the CDC. On May 24th, they put out an advisory regarding Paxlovid rebound when it was used off its original uh, inclusion criteria in those who have not, um, in those who, I'm sorry, who have taken multiple every six month mandated products. Uh, So in every single circumstance, therapies have been undermined, but the every six month products that people are forced to take have been wildly supported without fair balance. And you go into explicit detail about the mechanisms behind why these products work in the book, by the way. So for people that are curious, you've got to go and read this. Two, two quick fire questions for you, Peter. First one, are you going to wear a mask again, just out and about day to day on a plane? You know, mask is one of the most frequent questions I get. I'm a frequent contributor on Fox News in the United States. And I can tell you the lead anchor, Laura Ingram, always wants me to make a statement regarding masks. And I've told her and the producers, it's just not my signature issue. Uh, I was in the hospital all day yesterday. I wore a mask the entire day. I'm a cardiologist. If I go in the operating room or or around people, and I say, why would, why would someone wear a mask in a hospital setting or in dentistry 
or orthodontics and anywhere we're working at close range, it actually helps block a sneeze when our hands are occupied or we're in a close situation, we can't control the sneeze um, and helps control a cough. Uh, and I think it's it's courteous. So I actually don't have a problem with, with wearing masks in that setting. If we have a patient who's got the illness and they need to go from the room to x-ray or CT, they actually wear a mask. I think that's fine. Uh, it may, can, may restrict some droplet spread, but we have no false beliefs that the masks are gonna actually contain the virus. Uh, it's worn out of courtesy, maybe to stop droplet spread or other pathogens. And, and what I think you're implying is if we put masks on people who don't have the illness, who are not acutely sick and not working in medical settings, if we just put masks on people generally, is that going to influence anything? Well, there's 12 randomized trials in respiratory diseases, two in the present virus. None of them showed a significant benefit. Uh, there's been ecological analyses showing they don't show any benefit. And it makes sense if two people don't have it and they wear masks all day, it can't make a difference. But even if someone's acutely ill, uh, we shouldn't rely on the masks. I mean, they really should be by themselves uh, undergoing early treatment and get through the illness. You know, early treatment, particularly the virucidal washes, they do far more than masks. They reduce the duration of time that someone's infectious from potentially two weeks down to about two to three days. I can't emphasize it enough. Every person listening here ought to have some dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide because they want to be courteous to others. And not only that, but it works for other viral illnesses. So I traveled this week. I testified in federal court. I carried a, a spray bottle with me because if I started to feel a little something or I had an exposure, I would go ahead and use it as a nasal spray, spray it up there, sniff it back and spit it out. It's got to go all the way around. Great answer. <laughs> Second question for you. I come up to you in the street. You're just a man on the street, given your experience. And I say to you, Peter, should I get inoculated for this via the gene therapy? At this, yeah, at this point in time, uh, I think we can all agree that safety comes first. Safety comes first. Doesn't matter how effective they are. They must be safe right? It doesn't matter how fast that car goes. If the car's going to blow up when you drive it off the lot, it doesn't matter how much you like the car. So they must be safe. So if we examine safety on June 11th, 2022, um, after several calls regarding cease and desist, the World Council for Health that's headquartered in the UK represents over 70 non-governmental organizations, put out a global recall for all the products, all of them. Okay. Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, uh, as well as the antigen-based vaccines and the whole virus vaccines. And why did they do that? They did that because uh, there are 39 databases worldwide keeping track of outcomes. They focused on four big ones, the US CDC VAERS, yellow card system, the EU UDRIS system, and the WHO VigiSafe system. In those systems, there's over 40,000 deaths that have occurred shortly after taking one of these. 40,000. And they give a historical examples of products being pulled off the market after just a handful of events. Uh, but 40,000 is way more than five or 10 or 50. It's beyond any acceptable limits. Uh, there clearly are now millions of injuries, disabilities, and this is occurring worldwide. It's consistent in the medical literature is over a thousand peer reviewed papers. We can't predict who this is gonna happen to. That's actually the disturbing thing. So the next person on the street who walks up to me, I have no assurances that they'll be alive, that they'll survive it, or they'll come out uh, without injury or disability. And then everyone agree, we don't have any long-term assurances on safety at all, none. Uh, we know the genetic material lasts in the body far too long. The spike protein generated uh, lasts in the body for well over a year. None of this looks safe to even entertain. And then on efficacy side, uh, most studies now are down to near zero efficacy. It looks like they do nothing against the most modern strain. So the, the net analysis here would be uh, to defer or decline these. Okay. Thank you for answering that question, by the way. Peter, where can people find you, sir? You can find me. I have a link tree, uh, petermccullummd.com. Uh, uh, that gives a link to all the different sites, inclu including couragetofacecovid.com. That's, uh, that's our website for the book. And then uh, go to America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report. I issue a talk radio 
on uh, Saturday and Sundays worldwide. It's free. And then it goes on the Apple iPod iHeart Network on Tuesday. I interview people from all over the world. I've had people on from uh, Australia, from South America, Central America. And, uh, you know, these are uncensored platforms. Books can't be censored. And, uh, and people understand right now there is an active censorship program that's trying to suppress the truth to Americans and, and to people in the world. And they are gravitating to authoritative sources of truth. <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Dr. Peter, for, for the work that you are doing. And to, to say that it was exciting to know that you and I were going to spend some time together was uh, it's an understatement, really. I, I found out a few years ago that I'm related uh, to Winston Churchill on my mother's side. And it explains a lot about who I am and the person that I've become. And, I, and, and I'll reiterate this again. I, I just want to know the truth so I can make an informed decision. That's all. And I think that's what the direction that you're heading in, if not already there. Is that a fair assumption? Sure. That's all we want to know is we just want some fair presentation. It's a novel thing. It, it, it hit us. None of us, uh, most of us were not thinking about this five years ago. Some people were. I wasn't. And we just want to know what to do. As a doctor, I feel responsible for my patients. As a family member, I'm responsible for my for my family members. And, and we just want to make the best decisions and be fair about it, really, and, and be dispassionate, I think, uh, about the, the evidence review. And I think we're so disturbed what we've seen from governments and worldwide bodies and, and these public utterances that have come out over time. I think everybody should be disturbed and alarmed. But I'll say one thing. There is one court that's open, and it's the court of public opinion. And public opinion in the end will prevail against all of these adverse forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Peter McCullough. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.